Church family, I invite you to open up your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And if you would stand. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Church, this is the Word of God for us today. Would you be seated? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The title of our message today is God, the uncreated Creator. The uncreated Creator. Church, every verse of the Bible is the Word of God. Every verse of the Bible should be read. Every verse of the Bible should be studied over and over and over. But certain verses of the Bible carry so much weight that they are deserving of our intense consideration. It's not that every verse of the Bible is not important, but certain verses carry a certain amount of weight with them. Perhaps it's because of the way that particular verse sets the stage for what follows, or because of the way it summarizes what has been said or what will be said. Today we have before us a verse which I think fits in both of those categories and is thus worthy of our deepest consideration. We come today to the first verse of the first book of God's written revelation of Himself to mankind. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 is a verse which I believe sets the stage for what follows. Not just for what follows in the rest of chapter 1, or even in the rest of the creation account going through chapter 2, or even the rest of the book of Genesis, but really sets the stage for the rest of the Bible for all of human life. And not only sets the stage, but I believe chapter 1, verse 1 summarizes in very short order the answers to some of the most foundational questions of human existence, which the Bible goes on to answer in more detail in its many pages. We find some of these answers to these questions summarized in verse 1. We're going to embark today on a journey, a journey through the first book of the Bible. The title in our English translations is Genesis. That's probably what you see there in front of you. That title comes from the Greek title, which comes from a word which appears 13 times in the book of Genesis. And 11 of those 13 times, this word serves as a section heading. And we'll see those as we travel through the book of Genesis. That that word, it, it can mean generations or your translation may translate it, the, the, the family account of. It's a word that means origins, where we would trace our roots back to. That's the title coming from the Greek translation, which then gets translated into English. The title in the Hebrew Scriptures is, is simply the first word in the first verse, which is the word that means in the beginning. So if you were to open up a Hebrew copy of the, the book of Genesis, the title would say, in the beginning. That's the title. It's a apt title for the book. Both of them are fitting titles. The book is certainly about the beginning. Not the beginning of God, as we will see today, but the beginning of God's world. The beginning of God's creation. And this book is a book about origins. Genesis teaches us about the origins of creation. About the origins of work. 
about the origins of marriage, the origins of sin, the origins of pain and suffering, the origins of languages and nations, the origins of the nation of Israel, and the origins of God's eternal promise of salvation. In fact, all these origins are found even in the first 11 chapters. And then in the rest of the book, they are expounded upon and exemplified. Chapters 1-11 through of the book of Genesis sets the stage for everything that follows really in the Bible. And then chapters 12-50 through narrow the focus. If you you want a kind of a summary of how how the book of Genesis is laid out, let me give you a a summary of the two sections. And I'll give you kind of a, a few statements about the whole book. You can think about it this way. Chapters 1 through 11 focus on the whole world while mentioning the one family line which will be the focus of the rest of the Old Testament. And then chapters 12 through 50 of the book of Genesis focus on the one family line while keeping in view the whole world. Let me summarize the progression of the book of Genesis in nine sentences. Okay? Nine sentences. Number one, God creates the world. Number two, sin enters the world. Number three, God curses the world, but includes a promise of salvation. Number four, God's world becomes so corrupt that He destroys it and basically starts over with one family which He saved. Number five, God divides the people of the world into many nations. Number six, God calls a man named Abram to be the recipient of a covenant whereby God will fulfill His original promise of salvation, which will be a blessing to all the earth, and He will do so by fulfilling specific promises of land, descendants, and protection. Number seven, God passes down this covenant to Abraham's son Isaac, and then Isaac's son Jacob. Number eight, God gives Jacob twelve sons who would later become the twelve tribes of the nation of Israel. God's covenant people through whom He would send the fulfillment of His promise of salvation which would lift the curse from His creation. And then number nine, God providentially places this family in Egypt which is outside the land that He promised to give them. But as the book ends, there is an anticipation that this family will return to that promised land. So there's the basic plot line of the book of Genesis in nine sentences. Granted, some of those sentences might have been run on sentences, but we're not in an English class here, so give me some grace. That's the basic plot line. But there's 50 chapters. There's 50 chapters full of information. So what else is going on there? Well, as we'll see, this book is filled with many details. And I think you could even summarize these details this way. These details highlight for us the sin of humanity against God, the sovereign grace of God in the midst of sin, and the importance for sinners to have faith in God. That is the message of the book of Genesis. Now, my plan is for us to study through the entire book of Genesis, though we may interrupt it from time to time with some other passages of Scripture and perhaps even some other short series along the way. But at some point in time, we will finish the book of Genesis. Now, this will probably be the only time, perhaps, throughout our study where I preach only one verse. Only one verse today. Uh, If we did that throughout the whole book of Genesis, we would never finish the book of Genesis. We would be in it for the rest of our days here on this earth, I think. Uh, Some weeks we're going to study several verses. Some weeks we'll study whole chapters. Some weeks we may even study multiple chapters at a time, just because that's the way narrative works. That's the way the book of Genesis is laid out. 
But for the remainder of this sermon, I just want us to focus on chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Church, the main truth for us today is this. The most foundational distinction is that which, is, which exists between God and His creation. The most foundational distinction is that which exists between God and His creation. By distinction, I mean difference or something that sets one thing apart from another. When we get into the rest of chapter 1, not today, Lord willing, next week, we will see many distinctions being made. We will see a distinction between light and darkness. We will see a distinction between the sky and the waters. We will see a distinction between the waters and the dry land. We will see a distinction between the light which rules the day and the light which rules the night. We will see a distinction between the types of living creatures. For instance, some belong in the sky, some belong in the water, and some belong on the land. And even within those broad categories, there will be distinctions between various kinds of sea creatures and various kinds of birds and various kinds of land animals. We'll see a great distinction between animals and humans. And we'll even see a distinction between humans as God makes them male and female. But church, the greatest distinction, the most foundational distinction, is that which exists between God and His creation. God is God, and we, along with the rest of His creation, are not. We are not God. And if we miss this, then we will miss everything else in the Bible, and ultimately, we will miss out on life as God intends it here, and eternal life forever. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy that God's Word, which he called the sacred writings, are, quote, able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, those sacred writings which make us wise for salvation begin by drawing a very clear distinction between God and everyone and everything else. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I want to share with you five short but extremely important foundational truths that I think we learn from this verse of the Bible. This very first verse. Truth number one is this. God alone is uncreated. Church, God alone is uncreated. Make sure you put that un before created. He is uncreated. Verse 1 says that God created the heavens and the earth. We have God as the subject, His creative working as the action, and the heavens and the earth as the result of that action. But notice what we don't have in verse 1. We don't have a creation of God. In a book all about origins, what we don't see in Genesis or in any other book of the Bible is any explanation or information regarding the origins of God. Other than He just has always existed. The Bible just starts with God being there. According to verse 1, there was a time when the heavens and the earth did not exist. That would be the time prior to God creating them. There was a time when all that we see did not exist. However, implied in verse 1 and affirmed throughout the pages of Scripture is the truth that there has never been a time when God has not existed. In the next book of the Bible, book of Exodus, 
This God of creation is speaking with Moses from a burning bush that didn't burn up. God was calling Moses at that time to take the people of Israel out of Egypt. And Moses asked God, what do I say if they ask me the name of the God who sent me? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God's name is I am, not I became. God did not have a beginning. He has always existed, which means he is self-existent. He does not rely upon anyone or anything else to exist. Of course, everything that is not God is the opposite because it is created by God, which means it is dependent upon God for its existence. You are not self-existent. Every second of the day, whether you are conscious of it or not, you owe your existence to the God who created you. And so does the rest of creation. But God is uncreated. He is I am. He just exists and He always has existed. Another way we could say it is that God, God's existence is everlasting. Everlasting. Hear the words of the psalmist in Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And then hear the words of Jesus, the Son of God, as He was praying for His disciples on the eve of His crucifixion. John chapter 17, verse 5, Jesus prays this, And now, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You, before the world existed. And I'm going to skip a few verses later on in Jesus' prayer. John 17, 24. He prays this, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, there's a whole lot we could talk about in those two verses from Jesus' prayer. But I just want you to notice before we dive into God's creative action in the rest of this verse and then later um, in the weeks to come in chapters 1 and chapter 2, I just want you to notice there is one and only one who is uncreated. And that is God. Truth number two, church, is this. God alone is creator of all. God alone is uncreated. And God alone is is the Creator of all. This truth follows right on the heels of the first truth. Really, in a way, they're two sides of the same coin. God alone is uncreated, which means He must be the Creator of all. Or you could say it the other way. If God alone is the Creator of all, then He must be uncreated. Those truths go together. Verse 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That phrase, the heavens and the earth, is a combination of two words, which is really one idea, one thing there. It's used to refer to the entire universe. The heavens and the earth. you got to just say it real fast. Run them together. Like a compound word. It's the heavens and the earth. It means all that is. The heavens are everything you see when you look up and the earth is everything you see when you look around and down. That's the best way I can summarize it. It's everything. Everything that there is. God created planets and penguins. God created stars and sea urchins. God created rocks and rhinos. God created molecules and mankind. He created it all. Even the word create drives attention to this 
this distinction between God and the rest of His creation. The word create drives attention to God being the one who is responsible for bringing into existence all that is. There's several Hebrew words used for making something. There's a word that means formed. There's a word that means built. There's a word that means make. In fact, we see all of these words used of God in His creative working in chapters 1 and chapter 2. But there's only one of these Hebrew words that is only ever used for God throughout the Old Testament. And that word is the word that we see in verse 1, translated create. The other words, form, built, make, those words in Scripture are sometimes used of God making something and sometimes they're used of humans making something. Humans can certainly make things, but only God can do the action of verse 1. Every time we see the word translated create, that word that's in verse 1, every time we see that word throughout the rest of the Old Testament, it's always God who is doing that type of creating. It's God who is the one doing the action. God is the creator, not you, not me, no one else. And He is the creator of all. The prophet Jeremiah said it this way, Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 12. It is He who made the earth by His power, who established the world by His wisdom, and by His understanding stretched out the heavens. Oh, what a, what a beautiful verse of Scripture. How clear it is that God is the Creator of all. This is one of the first truths my wife and I teach our children. As soon as they're able to understand basic sentences and speak basic words, we start asking them this question. We say, who made you? And the answer is God. Just one word. God. When they learn the answer to that question, we begin teaching them a second question. And that second question is, what else did God make? The other day I asked my two-year-old while I was tucking her into bed these questions. I said, who made you? And she said, God. I said, that's right. I said, what else did God make? And she said, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And then she did her little, <laughs> like that. Do you know what the translation of, <laughs> is? It means, I know the answer, but I'm not saying it. I know the answer you're looking for, but I'm not going to say it. That gives you a little insight into the mind of my two-year-old who finds great pleasure in purposefully answering questions incorrectly. Of course, you could make the case that ultimately God is the creator of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. But the answer I was going for was one word. Everything. Everything. Who made you? God. What else did God make? Everything. God made everything. The Apostle John opened his account of the life of Jesus with similar wording as that of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. He said of Jesus... In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Notice this. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Again, a lot could be said here about those verses from the Gospel of John. But just notice that all things, all things were made through Him. God alone is Creator of all things. Now, I want to give you three more truths, but really these are sub-points, if you will. In other words, they are true. These last 
three things are true because God alone is creator of all. He alone is uncreated and He has created everything. Because God alone is creator of all, truth number three, God alone is owner of all creation. God alone is owner, owner of all creation. We will see this truth unfold throughout the rest of chapter 1, but I want to go ahead and put it before us. God alone is owner of all. Creation does not belong to you or to me. It ultimately belongs to God. Which means, which means, He has the right to, as we'll see in chapter 1, place humans, which He does, as stewards or managers over His creation. He has the right to tell us what to do and what not to do with His creation. He has the right to hold those managers responsible for what they do with His creation. He has the right, as we will see, to bless His creation. And He has the right to curse His creation. He has the right, as we will see in the book of Genesis, to destroy His creation. And He has the right, as we will see in this book, to rescue His creation. And we see God doing all of that in the opening chapters of the Bible. This truth that God alone is owner of all is a foundational truth for living life in God's world. For instance, God has told us that it is wrong to murder humans. Well, what gives Him the right to say that? Well, He is the owner of humanity. Why? Because He is the Creator of humanity. God has told us that we can eat plants and we can eat animals. Well, what gives Him the right to tell us that we can pluck up a plant and eat it and kill an animal and eat it? Well, He's the owner of the plants and the animals. He created them. He can tell us what we can and can't do with them. God has told us to be generous with what we have. Whether that is giving to someone in need or contributing to the mission of God through the local church. What gives Him the right to tell us to give away our money and possessions? He ultimately is the owner of it all. He can tell us what to do and not to do with all it is because He is the Creator. I love the simplicity and grandeur of how the psalmist puts this truth in Psalm chapter 24, verses 1 and 2. The earth, the psalmist writes, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. In other words, the earth is the Lord's and everything that fills it, the world and everyone who lives in it. It's another way you could translate that. But then notice verse 2. What's the foundation for that? For He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. In other words, it's speaking towards His creation of it all. Because He created it, He owns it. Psalmist roots God's ownership of everything with His creation of everything. He founded it, therefore He owns it. We see the same thing in Psalm chapter 89, verse 11. The Creator is the owner. Psalm 89, verse 11 says, The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all that is in it, you have founded them. God alone is owner of all. Also, though, because God alone is the Creator of all, not only is He the owner of all, but number four, today, God alone is sovereign over all creation. 
Because God is the creator of all. He is sovereign over all creation. The word sovereign means to be in complete control. God alone is sovereign in complete control over all creation. And this too, just like God being the owner of everything, is a foundational truth for living life in this world. God is in complete control of all things at all times. Just just pause for a minute and wrap your minds around that. Thinking about distinctions. Is there anything, anything that you are in complete control of at all times? We can't even control ourselves half the time. Right? That's what the Bible calls we need to have self-control. Why does the Bible have to tell us to have self-control? Because we can't even control ourselves, much less anything or anyone else around us. And yet God is in complete control of all things all the time. This means that nothing happens outside of His control. Nothing takes Him by surprise. Nothing thwarts or, or disrupts or messes up His plan. And when we combine this with the truth that He is good, which we're going to see in the rest of chapter 1 over and over and over, then we're left with the fact that God can and should be trusted. Church, we have a Creator who not only owns everything, but also is in complete control of everything, and He is good. A good God who owns everything and is in complete control of everything. All throughout the book of Genesis, we're going to see that see things that might make us think that the world is out of control. I mean, go home and read the book of Genesis today, throughout this week, and just see how many times it looks like, from a human perspective, things are out of control. We're going to see an evil tempter who despises God's Word. We're going to see humans rejecting God's Word and then deceiving and mistreating and murdering one another. We're going to see creation groaning through flood and famine. We're going to see human sexuality and marriage twisted through polygamy, incest, rape, and homosexuality. We're going to see women who need to have children in order for God's promises to be fulfilled struggle with barren wombs sometimes for decades upon decades. We're going to see what looks like a world spinning out of control, but just as clearly, we're going to see the hand of God controlling all things. We will see the wisdom and power and grace of God sustain life and move creation from its beginning toward its promised end. An end that He has promised. How is that? How is that? Because... The God who created all things is sovereign over all that He has created. Hear God's Word through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 48, verse 13, My hand laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. That's creation. Now notice the second part. When I call to them, they stand forth together. That is complete 
control. Do you hear that? You hear what Isaiah says? God says through Isaiah, my hand laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. In other words, they run. All of creation runs to the beckoning call of God. He just speaks and they stand to attention and do whatever He wants them to do. All of creation. Perhaps you're here today and your world seems to be spinning out of control. It happens. It's the life that we have in a broken world. Maybe even today your world seems to be spinning out of control. But I want you to hear what even this very first verse of the Bible is saying. It's not your world. It's God's world. And His world is not spinning out of control. He is in complete control. And He is sovereign over all. His sovereignty does not mean that bad things don't happen. But it does mean that those bad things do not mess up God's plan for His creation. His plan for His people. How else could the Apostle Paul give such an incredible promise in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, where he says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. The only way that promise could be true is if God is sovereign over all creation. And from the very first verse of the Bible, we see that God is just that. But church, it gets even better. It gets even better than the first verse where a good God is sovereign over all of creation. This same One who is sovereign over all things laid down His life so that His good work in this world and in the life of His people would be accomplished. I wish we had time today to stop and spend another 30 minutes or so looking at the book of Colossians in the first passage, uh, first chapter there. We can't do that, so let me summarize in just a paragraph. Paul wrote of Jesus to the Colossians. And Paul said of Jesus, by Him all things were created, and that in Him all things hold together. But he also says of Jesus that He makes peace by the blood of His cross and reconciled us in His body of flesh by His death. And Paul says there in chapter 1 of Colossians that the result of this that the Creator, Jesus, has laid down His life for us, the result is that we have, quote, redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Friend, God is sovereign over all of creation and He uses His sovereignty to work salvation for all who belong to Him. Friends, it doesn't get any better than that. There is no hope that this seemingly out-of-control world can give you like that hope right there. But that leads to the fifth and final truth that I want to share with you from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Because God alone is Creator of all. Church, God alone is worthy of all creation's worship. God alone is worthy of all creation's worship. 
Now it makes sense. It really does. It makes sense. That if God is the Creator, then He is worthy of creation's worship. The creation should worship the Creator. The creation should not worship the creation. Because the one who does the work is the one who is worthy of the glory. And clearly in verse 1, God alone does the work of creating. The one who does the work gets the glory. I mentioned earlier two questions my wife and I ask our kids. Who made you? God. What else did God make? Everything, including peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. But then there's a third question. The third question is this. Why did God make everything? The answer is three words long. For His glory. Who made you? God. What else did He make? Everything. Why did God make everything? For His glory. You see, everything exists for the purpose of bringing glory to the Creator. But, now we are presented with the problem. As people living on this side of Genesis chapter 3, we can read Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 now, knowing that something is wrong. You see, we don't worship God alone. We don't. We find all sorts of other things in creation to worship other than God. And therefore, we deserve to be punished by the Creator God. Now, Psalm chapter 19, verse 1 says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Creation is proclaiming the glory of God. But Romans chapter 1 says that people have, quote, exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. You see, while the sun and the stars are worshipping God, humans are worshipping the sun and the stars. And all sorts of other things in creation. Throughout the millennia of human existence, from Genesis chapter 3 onward, humans have... To quote from Romans chapter 1 again, quote, exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Friends, we were created to worship God, but we worship the creation instead. And in our society, the way we most often do that is by worshiping ourselves. Most of us don't have idols, statues set up in our homes. But the false God that we often worship is standing in front of us when we look in the mirror. We set ourselves up as our own gods, but friends, we are the creation. We are not the Creator. The very first verse of the Bible drives selfish people to look away from themselves And away from the rest of creation and behold the God who is the creator and ruler of all. While verse 1 speaks of the heavens and the earth, it drives our attention to the God who created them. In the beginning, God. Dare I even say in the midst of such a self-centered society as we have become, dare I even say in a culture which is made a God out of self-image and self-esteem, dare I even say among a selfie-crazed people, and everybody should want to know everything I ate, said, did, and thought today, people, 
dare I even say what I think God is saying to us in this opening verse of the Bible, but I think I will take the dare, not only for the glory of God, but for the benefit of all who would dare to listen. Friend, God is more important than you. God is more important than you. Now that statement flies in the face of what is popular in our culture today where everything revolves around you. Where you are the center of your world. And your purpose is to make decisions which will make you happy. Which will bring comfort and convenience into your life even at the expense of someone else. But friend, the world does not revolve around you. The opening verse of the Bible tells us that God is most important. The first subject of the Bible is God and the first action of the Bible is God's action. You, nor I, nor any other human or created thing is most important. God is most important. And if that was the case in the beginning, then I think it's safe to say that will be the case in the end when we stand before God one day. Which means we have a choice to make. We can bow in submission to our Creator God today or we can be forced into submission on that day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and whether they want to or not that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory and praise of God. But friend, it is far better to submit to God today It is far better to lay aside your self-centeredness by casting yourself upon the mercy of God today. Here's the good news of the Gospel that we'll see begins all the way back in the book of Genesis. God can rescue you from you. And He can rescue me from me. He can forgive you of making life all about you. He can mend the broken relationship between you and Him, which is broken through our failure to worship God and God alone. He can restore you and me to our rightful place. That is, bowing before His throne rather than trying to usurp His throne. He can give you everlasting life with Him in the new heavens and the new earth. And He can do all of this through His Son, who, as we have seen throughout this message, not only created you, but who died for you. Not only died for you, but who defeated death for you. You see, our deepest problem as humanity is that we have failed to acknowledge the distinction which exists between God and His creation. And friends, that is sinful to do so. Never in Scripture do we see angelic beings flying around a human or any other piece of creation declaring, holy, holy, holy. But that is exactly what we see them doing to God. And Isaiah's response, when he saw the Lord and heard the seraphim declaring, holy, 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 Isaiah's response should be our response. When we recognize the distinction between creation and the God of creation, that response is confession of sin, receiving God's cleansing sacrifice, and then living a life of worshipful obedience. And we know from the pages of Scripture that that cleansing sacrifice is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus alone can transform your heart and my heart into hearts that worship 
God alone. So let me ask you, have you trusted in Christ alone? If you never believed in Jesus, will you believe in Him today for salvation? Only through Jesus can we become worshipers of the one true God rather than remaining His enemies. What about those of you who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ? If you have believed in Jesus for salvation, are you submitting to His reign and authority in your life each day? Are you bowing before the Sovereign Creator in every area of your life, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your job, in your free time, in your schoolwork, in your retirement, in your church involvement, in your response to the trials of life, in your celebration of blessings, in your interactions with the lost, in your devotion to the mission of God? Is your life all about you or is it all about the God who has saved you? Church, we will clearly see as we study Genesis that we live in a fallen, broken world. Life is difficult. Sin is all around us and in us. But the uncreated God who created all things, who owns all things, who is sovereign over all things, loves us and has made a way for us to press on throughout the brokenness of this world in worshiping Him and enjoying Him and Him alone. Friend, if you reject Him, you are choosing a life of unfulfilled longing in a broken world. But if you worship Him, you are choosing a life of satisfaction and fulfillment even in the midst of temporary trials as you serve the God who owns it all and as you trust the God who is sovereign over all. Church, we must not blur the lines between the Creator and His creation. The only way we properly live in creation and therefore enjoy life is when we acknowledge the distinction between God and His creation, and then let that acknowledgement lead us to worship Him and Him alone. And church, the only way we can do that is through Jesus, who created us, and who is our Savior and our King. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You for telling us this most foundational truth that You have created all things. God, everything else, every other truth in Your Word rests upon this, that You have always existed, that You are the Creator of all that is, that You own all that is, that You are sovereign over all that is and that You are worthy to be worshipped by all that is. Which means, Father, that in Your sovereignty You are able to, to take the sin and the brokenness of this world. Father, and send Your Son into it to redeem and to restore. And you're able to make a new heavens and a new earth one day. And because you are sovereign, you are able to give us a free gift of grace. 
that rescues us from us and gives us a new heart that is set on worshiping You instead of rejecting You. And Father, because You are sovereign over all, You are able to welcome all who place their faith in Jesus into Your family. Father, into Your presence. Gaining everlasting life with You. God, You are able to do all of that. And Father, You have accomplished all of that through the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, if there's someone here today who has never believed in Jesus for salvation, God, I pray that they would repent of their sin, their sin of not worshiping You, that they would rest upon the sacrifice of Jesus, believing in Jesus for salvation. Father, for those of us who have trusted Christ, Lord, help us. Help us to live lives which bring You all the glory and the honor and the praise. Father, lives of worshipful obedience to You. God, would You continue to work in our hearts over the next few minutes. God, as we stand to sing songs of praise, God, I pray that we would be overwhelmed by how good You are, how great You are, how different from us You are, and yet at the same time, how much You love us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.